Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com. I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC at the Apex again this week for Frankie Edgar versus Pedro Munoz. An exciting bantamweight tilt. That's right, Frankie Edgar down to bantamweight. We'll be talking about what that means. Plus, we'll talk about two of our other favorite fights on this card as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays, where we also give you a parlay to play and an underdog that we think is highly likely to cash. And once again, we cashed our underdog again last week, so you're going to want to listen into that segment. You're also going to want to catch our two fighter interviews for this week. We're talking to two of the fighters on that card. First, I'll be talking to Joe Selecki from Jim O as he prepares for his bout with Austin Hubbard. And it's the second time he's prepared for that bout, so that's an exciting one. And then we're going to be talking to Shanna Dobson, who is getting ready for Maria Agapova. And, and let me tell you something. This fight is on the main card. Agapova, hot prospect. Dobson seems like she's in a good place for this. So you're going to want to listen in to how she's feeling about this phenomenal matchup. And, of course, you can hear those interviews and that breakdown starting right now. And joining me now is Joe Selecki, who fights Austin Hubbard at UFC Vegas 7, Munoz versus Edgar. Joe, I actually wanted to start talking to you about, you know, the Contender Series was just last night as we're recording this. Your teammate, Impa Kasangane, gets the contract and, and then joins you on this card. What has the last 24 hours been like for you and, and for the gym? Yeah, man, we were so pumped. We, um, you know, we trained at GMO. For, that's where we go to put all of our training together. And our, our head MMA coach, Jeff Jimmo, is just a genius. And we just love getting to train with those guys. You know, every time, every week in camp, we're up there training with these great guys. And we've just seen Impa grow so much and such a hard worker, such a humble human being. So uh, we were watching back home in Wilmington. And we were just so excited to see him get what he's worked so hard for, you know. And uh, I thought he was just such a complete fighter last night. He showed, he just showed poise beyond seven fights. You know, he just looked incredible. So to see him get that opportunity of getting the contract, but then, you know, selfishly, I was jumping up and down when they said August 22nd, uh, even though it's a quick turnaround for him, because now I don't have to go to battle alone. You know, I'm going to be out there with my team, my coaches. Uh, we both share the same head coach, Jeff Jimmo, so he'll be there. But now Impa is just one of the most contagiously positive, exciting human beings to be around. You know, he brings his energy going into fight week. I had him there, even though he wasn't fighting, in D.C. with me, and he's just the best teammate you could be on a card with or have around you on fight week. So, selfishly i'm glad that we're gonna have him there just because i love being around him you know so it's gonna be a great week and another great another great step for uh, for our gym jim o you know and then uh on the same weekend we have my, one of my other coaches john salter is fighting friday night in bellator so we have three guys in big promotions that night so it's just funny how a small gym out of a small town in north carolina is making so many waves yeah, and I was going to ask you about that, too. Jeff Jimmo's name is a name that keeps popping up on UFC broadcasts. You know, you've heard him around Brian Barberena and Scott Holtzman and, and now you and Impa, John Salter, like you mentioned. His name keeps popping up. What makes him in, in sort of that gym so special and so much on the up and up? Well, number one is I think him as a human being, you know, and uh, that sounds cliche and people talk about this all the time, but it really is true. Like he's in this because he wants to change people's lives and you can see it in his dedication, and he wants nothing out of it a lot of times. He just wants to help us, and uh, you'll see it. You know, how many times have you seen – can you put a face with Jeff Jimmo? Probably not, you know, because he's not in the cage 
before or after. He's there when he's cornering, and then he's gone. You know, he's not there for the, the glory. He's not doing interviews or taking pictures. Or I had to beg him to get in the picture backstage for my first fight. He's like, no, this is your moment. Like, I think that's not first and foremost. Is he's here for that. Secondly, is just he's got a great mind for fighting. He puts it together so well, so well-rounded. You know, he wrestled in uh, – he's a collegiate wrestler, grew up striking, kickboxing, had fights in Thailand, and is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I mean, there's no better – blend as a coach you know so he puts it all together for us and just instills confidence in us when he says something's going to work it works you believe him and uh, i think we all just respect him so much which sometimes when you get a bunch of meathead mma fighters together not that that's what we are but you get a lot of egos but there is none of that there everyone listens to to jeff and what he has to say because it's going to be something great when he opens his mouth man i I love that and and that's a nice little insight into a coach like you said we don't know too much about now, I, I want to switch the focus here to talking a little bit about your fight, because you're in kind of an interesting situation. You've already prepared once for Austin Hubbard, and then this fight was canceled. you you got to watch him fight a replacement fighter and, and look pretty good. What was watching that fight like? Yeah, it, it was frustrating. You know, it was frustrating for a couple different reasons. Is You know, during quarantine, I stayed so ready and so so focused on fighting, because I just I knew my time was going to come up, and that staying ready and staying in camp, even when I didn't have a fight and putting in fight camp workouts was going to pay off. And then it did. And then it didn't, I had it taken away, you know, and that was frustrating, but it was frustrating too, because, and this is not a shot at, at Max. He's a very tough guy, very skilled, great pedigree, wins a lot of jiu-jitsu tournaments, great collegiate wrestling background. Um, but maybe just not ready on such short notice for such a big opportunity, but watching somebody take that opportunity and kind of, um, not waste it, but just, give up, you know, and everybody's going through different stuff. I don't know how he felt on that stool. I know how I felt in the stool in the past in my losses. And, um, you know, I've, I've gotten out there and, and my opponent might as well have been the uh, executioner with the mask on and the ax, you know, but I knew I had to go out there because that's what I signed up to do. So um, watching somebody kind of blow that opportunity was frustrating because I just thought I could have done better, you know. Hubbard looked great. And that's, that's the other thing is people were focusing too much on, you know, Max stopping between rounds. But um, it was frustrating for me sitting home knowing – I could have done better. You know, I have a family, man. I can't, I can't not go out to the third round because I'm not having a good time. You know, that's not an option. I got to keep my job, walk out there. And even if I know I'm on death's door and I got nothing left, I got to go out there. I got to crawl out there. Let him kick me, beat me, whatever he's got to do. But quitting is not an option. So watching somebody put on the stool was frustrating for me as the guy that should have been in there that night. But we're here now. We're prepared again. I've never stopped. You know, I had that positive COVID test is what it was that kept me out. But I never had to stop training because... I was able to quarantine and train so uh, for that week, and then I was right back at it. So I've been in camp all of quarantine, 20-something weeks, and we're prepared for Austin Hubbard now, and uh, I'm just glad to get my opportunity. That, that's great. Now, I, I know you said you were frustrated in there that you you know you had to watch a guy, you know, not, not necessarily blow his chance, but, but not do what you thought you could do. Also, you know, let's focus on Hubbard. Did you did you see anything extra in that fight? And maybe you don't have to disclose it that that might help you in this fight. Did you get a little bit more insight into your opponent, getting a fresh look at him? Absolutely, a hundred percent. And I think that's because I kind of had not not fight night nerves by any means, but I had my adrenaline pump in watching the fight. When I'm watching his old fights, you know, when we first get the fight, you're watching and you're like, oh man, this guy looks so much faster, so much this, so much that. And you're glorifying it because it's your opponent. I watched it that night with the confidence of being like, I should be in there right now. And then watching it with unbiased opinion, you know, and I'm seeing things where, oh, maybe he looked extra sharp here. He looked beatable there or whatever it might be. But I watched it from a competitor standpoint, standpoint, not not being nervous and seeing, you know, what he's going to do to me. And uh, I think it was really good for me to kind of get that first little adrenaline dump out of the way just watching at home, you know. So um, 
it was cool to get that out of the way because we kind of had a rush camp to get ready for him. I think it was like 16 days. And, you know, now I've had all this time, even though we didn't know if it was going to be him. Obviously, he's my last opponent I was offered. So he was in the back of my mind the entire time. So it just lets me get more used to the idea of fighting him. And, you know, we're very prepared now. That's absolutely awesome. Now, before I let you go, too, I do got to snag a prediction out of you. When this all goes down this upcoming weekend, UFC Vegas 7, Munoz versus Edgar, how do you see this fight ending with Austin Hopper? Yeah, um, you're always going to get the same answer out of me. You know, and, and this is, A, because I always prepare for this because I think it's, it's the best way to be. But also, with Hubbard, I think this is the most likely outcome is i got to fight for every single position for 15 minutes. I've got to win every single exchange I can, stay dialed in for 15 minutes, and then I get my hand raised after three hard rounds. That's, that's the kind of fight that people win against Austin Hubbard, and that's the fight I'm prepared to win. I love the mentality, and I'm looking forward to that fight. Once again, fans, this was Joe Selecki, who fights Austin Hubbard at UFC Vegas 7, Munoz versus Edgar. Joe, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. And that interview with Joe Selecki is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, jujitsu, sambo, or any other martial art, It doesn't really matter because what Maroon is going to do is help you take that martial art to the next level. They've got all kinds of different martial arts in their systems that all of them have the techniques built right into the app so that you can tag those techniques, see when you trained them, look at your notes, and there's all kinds of other great functions too where you can check in your weigh-ins or you can log your competitions. It is the best way to keep a running record of what you're doing and make sure that you're making the progress you want. So check them out wherever it is you download apps. All right, and I am joined now by Shannon Dobson, who fights Maria Agapova at UFC Vegas 7, Munoz versus Edgar. So I want to start by talking about the fact that that you made your UFC debut and, and fought on The Ultimate Fighter. After just three pro fights, including one of them against the future UFC champion, do, do you feel like it's sort of been a steep learning curve for you? How, how have you handled that, that pressure? Yeah, um, everything kind of happened pretty fast. I mean, as a fighter, I've been growing up, you know, on the big stage and, and in front of every, everyone's eyes. So it's been kind of crazy, but, you know, that's just, I, I, I embrace that pressure. It's, it's it's forced me to make difficult decisions. It's forced me to work, you know, ten times as hard as my opponents and uh, as as my competition. So, I I uh, I definitely am grateful for that. I, I love that mentality. Now now also you know obviously like you said it, it was a steep learning curve. You were given that shot on the Ultimate Fighter. You know like I said three fights after you started. Did you ever envision things picking up that fast? Like, is that something you thought was going to happen when you started MMA? I think that, yeah, when I think about, I think about that often, like when I first started, you know, was I, was that my goal? You know, a lot of people say like, oh, I knew I wanted to be the champ at age five and this, this, and that. And I've been grappling since age, age three. And, you know, I, I, I'm a very, um, I'm all about energy and I feel like I feel like I follow the positive energy and I and I follow my instincts and I think that my instincts have you know and and just just the way that I move I think that it's gotten me where I've gone and you know I'm excited to see where it takes me uh I've just I just kind of go with it and and you know I, I love for the opportunity of where I'm at I know that I'm different I know that I'm skilled 
and I bring something different to the division. And, you know, it'd be a shame of me to keep that all to myself instead of, you know, letting the world see that. I love that that energy too. Now I gotta ask you too. What what was the energy that drew you to MMA in the first place? Because I know you turned pro a little bit later than the average fighter does. You turned pro right around 27 years old. What drew you to MMA at that age? You know, I played. I had played soccer like all through my life, um, and I was kind of just looking for a different sport. And I feel like me and MMA were just like. We're, we had always meant to be soulmates. We were just, you know, going about life, you know, whatever. And then we were meant to meet. And I guess we were meant to meet when I was 27 years old because I had, I had, uh, I was looking for another sport to participate in, kind of just, you know, something casual. And I started off uh, with this small gym in Arlington. MM, uh, it's called Arlington MMA. I started off with a small gym in Texas. And then from there, you know, I saw it as a challenge. And I love a challenge in any way, shape, or form. So when, when I seen that that was something that, you know, that, that I had to grow with and, and that challenged me physically and mentally and it utilized every part of your body and every part of your mind and your spirit and your soul, then that, that just made me fall in love with it. I love that. Now, now, how long after you started training MMA did you decide you, you were going to take a fight, whether amateur or professional? How long did it take you to make that decision? I think I had been training like six months maybe it had to be less than a year it was maybe like six months and then my coach at the time was like um I signed you up for a fight out in Oklahoma I didn't I didn't go out and you know seek it myself it was kind of just like he was like I you know I'm gonna push you because I'm not sure if you'll if you'll go out there and 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 do it yourself so I took that fight and as soon as I stepped in the cage and that switch turned on and I felt like that was where I was supposed to I should have been, you know, my whole life. And every time I step in there, I feel so at home. You know, it was just, it was all she wrote from there. I, I love it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this fight, too, because obviously it's a very interesting fight. They've got you paired with, with maybe the highly most highly touted prospect right now in the UFC in Maria Agapova. She had a really big debut, took a lot of hype into it. What, what were sort of your thoughts when they offered you her as a name? Had you seen her fight before? I'd never seen her fight before. I'd, I'd never heard of her, but, you know, I always I always have respect for my opponents. Um, you know, I think it's great that she's a prospect. I think that, you know, um, I've been in there. I've been in wars before. I've been in there, like you said, with the former champ of my division. I've been in there with Roxanne Mataferi, who's had, like, what, 100, 100 fights? You know, something crazy like that. I'm exaggerating, but, you know, I... I've, I, this ain't my first rodeo, so, you know, it's, I'm excited. I'm excited to get in there with somebody that's young, but, you know, I, black don't crack. I'm, I'm young too, so. I, I love that too. Now, you, you mentioned those fights with Nico Montano and Roxanne Matafari, which was on The Ultimate Fighter. What, what do you draw from having those fights when you have a fight with, with somebody like Maria Agapova? Because obviously, like you said, the experience is on your side. What were the big takeaways from those fights that allow you to to sort of build on your career? I I think I have takeaways from all of my fights. Um, I have takeaways from every every sparring session, every experience. You know, I'm out here with uh, Elevation Fight Team, and I've you know I'm I'm sparring a lot of big. I've sparred with a lot of big names that you do know, uh, Rose Namajunas, Raquel Pennington, Tisha Torres. I've also sparred with. 
uh, some names that you guys might not know of that are, are killers and, and, and beasts and with the shits out here. So, you know, I, I feel like there's nothing that I can get in. the When I get in the cage, there's nothing that I haven't seen or experienced or dealt with. So, you know, I'm I'm really I'm really uh, not worried about that. I've, I've seen versatile uh, opponents, you know, in my sparring sessions, in my in my fight career. I've had, you know, I've seen different looks. So, you know, it's it's just uh, it's it's not it's not nothing new to me. I, I love it. Now, I do want to ask before I let you go to here, I'd like to ask my fighters for a prediction. You seem like somebody confident enough to at least give me a, a thought on how do you see this fight going with Agapova? I think uh, Mariah is, she's a fun and exciting striker like myself. So I feel like we're going to put on a great show. I know I'm going to get my hand raised either way. I can't, I can't say how. Um, I can tell you that, you know, me and my coaches, we go over a, with physical training, we do a lot of mental training. So any any scenario that happens in that cage, we've already been there mentally. So, you know, I'm prepared for anywhere the fight goes. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. That was Shane Dobson, who fights Maria Agapova at UFC Vegas 7, Munoz versus Edgar. Shana, thanks you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you, man. Nice talking to you. In that interview with Shana Dobson is brought to you by fight forecaster that's right there's a new app out there fight forecaster it is a phenomenal way to test your mma knowledge because unlike some of those other apps or maybe those other pick em games that you play online somewhere they're not just asking you to make your pick think that that one fight is going to win picking mma is hard what they want you to do is they want you to give some probability to things it allows you to make multiple picks maybe you thought last week that stipe was probably going to win by knockout but maybe he could win by decision. You can actually level it out with different percentages based on what you think, and then you get your MMA handicap right in your bio, which is cool because it lets you know how well you handicap those situations versus other people. So it is a really intricate way to play MMA pick'ems online, so I highly suggest checking them out wherever it is you download apps. That's Fight Forecaster. Now, once again, I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland. I'm joined by Shockwave Dave. Dave, let's start by talking about UFC 252. It's obviously a crazy situation. Let's start with the, the main event in the eye poke round heard, heard round the world. What did you think of it? Call me loco, Gumby, but the eye pokes don't really affect me as much as they did. A lot of people on Twitter, I felt going into the fight that Stipe was going to win. You could go back to our episode last week. And I'm obviously not saying that the eye pokes didn't affect Cormier's ability to win the fight, but I don't know. These things just happen in MMA and I'm just not caught up on it. Like other people. Am I the weird one for that? No, I don't think so because it, for me, yeah, I was less bothered by the eye poke too. And I think some of it was just like, for me, not necessarily that I thought Stipe was going to win the whole time, which I did think. For me, the trajectory of that fight was just already clear to that point in me, right? Like, DC won round one. Round two was Stipe. Round three was increasingly Stipe. The eye poke happened. And for me, yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, the eye poke might have kept things going that way. But the things were already going that way. For me, Stipe was already going to steamroll him for the rest of the fight. He, he actually looked worse after the eye poke than before he did. So, like, you know, I, I think Stipe by decision was probably always the outcome, eye poke or not. 
I also saw, call it conspiracy theory, call it what you will, that DC's eye was a little swollen before the poke itself. Now, there's absolutely no doubt, as we say in pro wrestling, it's a shoot. It's a shoot, not a work, that he had to get some sort of eye surgery. There was corneal abrasion. Uh, I'm not an ophthalmologist, so I'm not going to get into the details of that. So I'm not saying the eye poke didn't affect him, but I think his eye might have been fucked up to begin with. And fighting is chaotic. You get into that fire, I don't know. Things happen. I'm not so stuck on it. I'm more fascinated in, obviously, we spoke about DC's legacy last week, so we'll leave it at what it was. I think we all knew this was probably going to be his last fight. Does he come back for a fat pile of cash next year if someone comes calling him? Absolutely. This isn't team sports. It's the fight business, business being the the operative word here. But for the most part, I think he's done being a regular fighter. Um, Obviously, the bigger news, maybe, uh, is the fact that his nemesis, John Jones, and the light heavyweight champion, has forfeited his title. Uh, He's in a contract negotiation of sorts with the UFC. And they it's actually very interesting the way they left it. Obviously, Jan Blachowicz and Dominic Reyes, friend of the pod, is going to be fighting for the interim, or I shouldn't even say interim, for the now vacant light heavyweight title. And both Jones and the UFC have said they're leaving the door open for him at heavyweight should they be able to uh, work out a contract. What do you make of the the volatility at both light heavyweight and heavyweight now. The the most interesting thing to me is if you look at the way that John Jones worded those tweets, it sounds like he wanted to renegotiate for more money and the UFC said, "We won't renegotiate for you at 205, but we will at heavyweight." Which to me, to be honest, makes all the sense in the world, right? Like what are we going to see of John Jones at light heavyweight? Him versus Jan Blankovic, him versus Reyes again, him versus Thiago Santos again, him versus Anthony Johnson again. Or Anthony Smith, again, you know, you never got the Anthony Johnson one. And apparently that's a thing now, too. Anthony Johnson's back. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think I really, truly, as somebody who likes the divisions to be the divisions and not see super fights, the thing I appreciate the most about it is it allows 205 to keep ticking. 205 has got so many fun challengers and so many new people. Yuri Proshaka is in that division now. You got Glover making a fucking run again. Anthony, Like I said, Anthony Johnson is back now. Like... There's so many fun people in that division to have it be an interim title and to just kind of hang in the distance for a while while we figure out what Jones is going to do and let him fight at heavyweight. I think they made the right move by telling him, look, we're not going to renegotiate for you at 205. Go to heavyweight. We'll talk down the road about what that means money wise. Go bulk up and see what we have to do. I think it was the right move on both of their parts, to be honest. Absolutely. I think for Jones, the money fights are at heavyweight at this point. He's clearly, quote-unquote, cleaned out the division. I think they'd be lackluster fights uh, that we'd be seeing as he goes forward with maybe Jan or a rematch with some of those guys that put up a fight but ultimately did not win. Um, Maybe Thiago Santos, just because he got injured and blew out his knee, would have the most right to to rematch. But the money fights are against Naganu or against Stipe, and Jones is 33. So how many more fights does he really have left? He'll probably fight till he's maybe 35, 36. And heavyweight division is a place where people can land and be good into their late 30s. Uh, speed, not normally a factor. Um, Jones will be the most athletic person in that division. So I think it's very interesting. But you know what else I think is interesting? It's our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, Parlays, and we're bringing it to you this week as we always do, but before we get into it, one may wonder if anyone sponsors this segment, Gumby. 
Absolutely, this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays is brought to you by MyBookie. Visit MyBookie.ag for the best mobile gambling experience that exists out there. If you bet from your phone or if you like to do live betting or, you know, hey, maybe we, you don't even have a computer. If you're betting from your phone, they've got the best mobile experience. You don't have to worry about their site crashing and not being able to get your bet in in time. They've got it covered for you. Plus, they're very easy to use because they accept cryptocurrency give you deposit bonuses, and all kinds of other great features. Check out all of those features at mybookie.ag. So we'll start at the main event of UFC Vegas 7. We're getting into, like, Fast and the Furious territory with these <laughs> Fight Night titles now. Fight Island 4, UFC Vegas 7. Um, and it's headlined by Frankie Edgar versus Pedro Munoz. Edgar has actually been a dog in his uh, last two fights. He was last a favorite to Cub Swanson. He was a minus 230 favorite facing Swanson at a plus 170. And interestingly enough, that would be his last win. He, of course, lost to Max Holloway via unanimous decision back in July of 2019 and then lost to Chen Sung Jung via TKO uh, in December of 2019. So his return to the octagon is at a... Uh, plus 200 dog and facing Pedro Munoz, who's a very strong minus 240 favorite. Munoz is coming off a loss, however, to Aljamain Sterling, the unanimous decision. But before that, put together a very nice three-fight win streak, beat Brett Johns via unanimous decision, beat Brian Caraway via TKO, and beat Cody Garbrandt, who's now fighting for the belt at 125. Funny how that works out when you can get beat out of a division and then just go fight for a title. But I guess the theme of today's show is it's the fight business. Long story short, who you got? I'm going with Pedro Munoz on this. And for a couple of reasons, number one is that Munoz's grappling game is probably superior when you count all facets against Frankie Edgar. Do I think he can wrestle Frankie up? No, I don't. But I think if the the fight were to head towards the ground, he'd probably snatch up a guillotine on a Frankie takedown, or he'd sweep him. You know, like, Pedro Munoz is a killer on the mat. So then you think about it being on the feet, and you think about the fact that this is Frankie Edgar at Bantamweight for the first time, and that scares the shit out of me. You know, like, don't, don't get me wrong. We've always been like, he's too small to be a lightweight. And then, like, he's kind of still too small to be a featherweight. Maybe he's the right size at Bantamweight, but he is cutting a massive amount of weight. And, and for a guy who spent a lot of his career not cutting a massive amount of weight too you know like I know he was a wrestler before but he had all those years in the lightweight division where he was cutting like five ten pounds and he was bragging about it you know that he didn't have to cut weight to me that's concerning to see him going down especially after getting pieced up by Chan Sung Jung not that Chan Sung Jung is not a beast but like you know he's going to wind up facing a guy in Pedro Munoz who's dangerous with his hands. We saw him absolutely flatline Cody Garbrand. I'm taking Pedro Munoz in this, and to be honest with you, I'm looking for props all around uh, on mybookie.ag. I'm looking for props where it says Pedro Munoz by finish. I can't stress this enough. I know we're done with our little promo read, but my bookie does make it really easy. I've used so many gambling services, and uh, I hate to say I'm addicted to it. <laughs> Uh, they just make it so easy. Anyway, Alonzo Menafield, uh, the former arena football player, uh, won on Dana White's Contender Series to make his UFC debut. Uh, that was back in June of 2018. And in his two years in the promotion, 
Uh, he's gone three and one, and I'm including the win on Dana White's contender series. But if you want to not look at that as anything but Dana White's contender series, he's two and one in the UFC. Big TKO win over Vinicius Moreira. Uh, big KO win over our boy Paul Craig. Coming off a loss to Devin Clark, the unanimous decision just uh, two months ago at this point, uh, maybe even about six weeks ago, early June. Uh, so quick turnaround for him, but he's the minus 135 favorite to Ovin St. Preux, who's a plus 115 dog. And believe it or not, coming off a loss via split decision to Ben Rothwell, of all people. And that was at heavyweight. Before that, he, of course, got a Von Flew choke uh, back in September of 2019, beating Michael Olechuk. I know I didn't pronounce that right, but I don't care. And, uh, you know, really the Von Flew choke at this point needs to be renamed the OSP choke. He's a plus 115 dog. What are you thinking here? Uh, I'm going with Alonzo Minifield. You talked about that loss to, to Devin Clark. And, and really in that fight, it, it was sort of that prospect loss that you come to expect from a, an undefeated guy who may not have been tested against like that, you know, number 20 class guy like Devin Clark is. And I think, you know, what happened was is he just didn't fight as smart of a fight uh, as he typically does. And, you know, like he kind of emptied the gas tank early against Devin Clark, a guy who's notoriously got a good gas tank. You see him now against the guy in Ovin St. Preux, who notoriously has an awful gas tank. You know, like go back to his fight with Volkan Ozdemir. Those two were so exhausted in the late rounds, it was almost pathetic to watch. So as a result, you know, like I'm not real high on OSP here. He just got outclassed, you know, slightly. You know, it, it was a, a split decision, but like... Ben Rothwell laid the technique down on him. Like, what What does that mean, right? Like, 40-year-old Ben Rothwell, or however old he is, you know, outpoints you on the feet. It's not a good look. He's fighting a guy who's got big hands. He's got knockout losses in his past. I'm going Alonzo Menafield here, and I'm going with him. Again, I think TKO is totally within the realm. And if you're getting him at negative 135, you know, straight-up fight odds, look at those TKO odds, because I guarantee those are hovering in the plus range. You know, I, I, this is a tough card to pick. The fights that we're laying out here, some of the more, I guess, big-name fights, these are the easy ones. When you look at the card as a whole, there are a lot of just unknowns here and tough fights to call. I really have nothing to add. I agree with every word you just said there, and uh, I really can't dispute it. We'll move on then, and we'll see if we agree on this one. Uh, Daniel Rodriguez is a minus-185 favorite to Takashi Sato, a plus-160 dog. Uh, Daniel Rodriguez has looked pretty impressive uh, since coming to the UFC. Uh, guillotine choke over Tim Means, which is no easy feat. That was back in February of this year. And then in May of this year, unanimous decision win over Gabe Green. So he's 2-0 and in the UFC. And Takashi Sato uh, coming off a TKO win over Jason Witt uh, back in June, actually about five weeks ago. So a lot of quick turnaround for people in this COVID 2020 year. But before that, lost to Bolil Muhammad. Beat Ben Saunders uh, in his UFC debut, so he's two and one in the UFC. Who you got? So I'm going to go with Daniel Rodriguez, but it's actually interesting that they paired these two guys together because, like you said, both of them got kind of high-profile guys out of the gate. One got Ben Saunders and one got Tim Means, and they both beat him handedly in really impressive stoppage fashion. Then most recently, their wins are both off of guys that you might not have heard of, right? Jason Witt and, and Gabe Green are, are not well-known names, and it's because they were late notice replacements. So I feel like we haven't seen the very best of either of these two since they debuted. 
And to be honest with you, I'm more impressed with Daniel Rodriguez here because I think he's got a more complete game. If you look at the win over uh, Tim Means, he stunned him with the hands and finished him with the choke. And that's really what he does. He's got great hands and he's got great submissions. He's a 10th planet guy, which of course I'm always high on. Sato, on the other hand, has got that crazy KO power similar to Daniel Rodriguez, but he doesn't really have much of a ground game. And I really like Daniel Rodriguez to get in his face here, you know, probably push him up against the cage, work maybe a takedown, and then see some slick grappling work. Yep, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. I do think it's worth noting, you know, Sato, he's a guy who's actually been around since 2013, started in the Pancrase division, which if you're a long-term fan of Japanese MMA, you of course know that name. And I was talking about this with someone uh, the other day, which is just, it, it always feels like Japanese MMA, it's very good at filling out rosters and they have a lot of depth, but they don't have that one shining star like let's say they did in Takanori Gomi going back 10 years ago and going back 15 to 20 years ago of course the the great surefire no doubt about it Hall of Famer Sakuraba um does Japanese MMA have that guy right now and I don't think it's Sato but is there someone that could maybe turn into the Conor McGregor of Japan, so to speak? I don't think so. It, it's really interesting to watch how, how little Japan has brought over to the UFC recently. You know, you might make some arguments that they've got somebody over in one who maybe we're all overlooking, you know, fighting in Asia. But, like, yeah, I haven't seen much, and it looks like the UFC is focused more on China, and, and the dividends are clearly paying off. you got guys <laughs> like Song Yudong, Wei Li Zhang, uh, Yang Xiaonan, uh, Yan and Wu. Like, all of those uh, fighters are, are skyrocketing in the UFC out of China, and you're getting almost nothing. Oh, I, I forgot Li Zhangliang, who, who's a Chinese fighter as well. Like, the, there is so much coming out of China and so little coming out of Japan. I, I don't know when that switched or what caused that switch, but it, you, you're right to note that. It's really interesting that Japan doesn't really have a flag bearer, so to speak. Yeah, um, it's very interesting to watch, especially just knowing that so much of MMA was born in Japan. Uh, we will move on. Uh, Amanda Lemos, plus 165 over Mizuki Inoue. Uh, that's our dog of the week. Why do we like her as a dog? Ruff, ruff, ruff. So I'm taking Amanda Lemos as our dog this week for a couple of reasons. Number one, I really liked her performance against Miranda Granger coming off that two-year layoff. She made her debut at Bantamweight. Had a two-year USADA suspension, comes back, and everybody's like, well, what kind of Amanda Lemos are we going to see? She's down two weight classes. You know, what what did happen during that two years off? And she didn't skip a beat. She actually looks like she picked up ground on her our ground game and getting to see her in her actual division. I'm super impressed with the way that she was able to submit, you know, really a submission specialist in Miranda Granger. So we're taking somebody who's got really good sub skills. Maybe her striking isn't quite there against Mizuki Inoue, who has the striking. But if you go back and look at her losses, such as the one to Virna Jandiroba, who, you know, just showed she's a killer grappler. And we're not going to put Lemos in that same class. But, like, it, she's got a similar style, right? So we've seen somebody with that style be Inoue. If Lemos is able to implement the same game, game plan as Jandy Roba does with some sweeps and some sub attempts and some just general top game pressure, I think there's a real chance, and especially at plus 165, I just think it's a smart play as far as the dogs on this card because I don't really like a lot of the dogs on this card. 
Well, I'll tell you two uh, favorites I like, and we're going to play them together for our parlay to play this week. Timur Valiev is a very strong minus 480. You might not want to play that on its own, put up four, win back one. That's tough for any just, you know, uh, call it weekend warrior gambler. But pair them together with Joe Selecki, uh, minus 135. You have two favorites, and it ends up getting you plus 110, and you got to feel good about Timor in this. So that's a nice parlay to play when minus 480 and minus 135 ends up getting you slightly even money. Yeah, and for me, you're right. Timor Valiev is a total add-on into this one because I think he's a slam dunk pick. You got Mike Mark Striegel here, who's a guy who pretty much is only going to win fights if he's able to take somebody down, fighting against a guy who's pretty hard to take down and just absolutely swarms you with, with cardio machines. So the fact that Valiev is going to be there in the second and third round against probably an exhausted, tried to wrestle for, you know, seven minutes, Mark Striegel, I think Valiev is a slam dunk. So I love adding that to a parlay because you take a fight like Joe Selecki versus Austin Hubbard, you get the favorite and you get him at plus money. So I'm going to pick Joe Selecki here and it's because a lot of people got high on Austin Hubbard and I think the odds are a little bit closer here because Austin Hubbard is coming off that win over Max Rochkoff, which of course caught all kinds of headlines. But the fact that Max Rochkoff wasn't able to, to grapple against Austin Hubbard really, to me, had more to do with his striking than his grappling. You know, I think a lot of people have had success against Austin Hubbard in the grappling department, but they set it up with their hands. Rochkoff just simply didn't do that, and then he was exhausted in the second round. So Lecky, notorious great gas tank. In addition to that, he sets up his grappling phenomenally with his hands, and he's got great sub skills. So, you know... Pair all of those things together, and he looks a lot more like the other two people who beat Austin Hubbard and Davi Hamosh and Marco Madsen. So I like the fact that he can follow that same similar game plan that has beaten Austin Hubbard in the past. And of course, like I said, if you pair him with a super favorite here in Timur Valiev, who's got almost zero chance of losing this fight, you're going to get plus odds, and and that's a, a pretty good bet to me. I'll tell you what else is pretty good. It's wrapping up this show, which I hope you enjoyed. I sure as heck enjoyed bringing it to everyone. Uh, If there's one thing we pride ourselves on, it's getting you good MMA content, a good interview, a little back and forth on the state of MMA, and some gambling advice in a timely manner. Because let's face it, you lead a busy life. You got better things to do. We're not one of those podcasts that's going to go on and on and on as I go on and on and on for three hours and overly laugh at each other's jokes. (laughs) Although I love when you laugh at my jokes, but I just hate hearing people laugh on a podcast. I don't know what it is. Not like a mini laugh, but sometimes people just belly laugh for like five minutes into a microphone. It really annoys me. So I hope we brought you something that was enjoyable. Gumby, with that being said, let's wrap up this bad boy and get out of here. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. Couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also couldn't do what we do without Float Combat or any of our sponsors, Maroon Social, MyBookie, or Fight Forecaster. Remember to check us out on Twitter, at TopTurtleMMA. All kinds of cool stuff going up there each and every day, along with our Instagram as well. Same thing, at TopTurtleMMA. And as for me, I'm at Gumby Vreeland, and you can catch me and Shockwave Dave Tremonte right here next week.